Hey there, and welcome to the Oscars Death Race Podcast, where we try to watch all the Oscar-nominated movies, or die trying. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well out there. If you're in the U.S., I hope you're enjoying your long MLK weekend. Uh, maybe you're going out to watch the new Mean Girls movie musical, or maybe you're watching Rustin on Netflix. After all, it is likely to be nominated for Best uh, Original Song this year, and it is relevant to the weekend. In any case, today we'll have the final episode of my Best Picture preview series before the nominations next week. Uh, later this week, we'll have an episode with Dakota from Contra Zoom Pod doing our annual nominations prediction contest. Speaking of, before we get into this week's episode, some major guild nominations just came out, uh, specifically the Producers Guild of America Award nominees. Uh, the nominees were The Zone of Interest, Anatomy of a Fall, American Fiction, Past Lives, The Holdovers, Maestro, Barbie, Oppenheimer, Kills the Flower Moon, and Poor Things. Now, that list seems a little bit weird in its order, uh, and in that because it's not alphabetical, that's because that's actually the order of which we talked about those films so far this season on the podcast. Uh, notable exclusions we've talked about include All of Us Strangers, The Color Purple, and May December. Uh, this list of 10 films, kind of in most places online, has become the de facto 10 predicted films of the for Best Picture, which, if it were to become true, would be the first time since the Oscars expanded to 10 uh, nominees and not just a floating number between 5 and 10. Now that it would match the PGA 10. Uh, they did match technically exactly uh, in 2016, 2018, and 2019, but that was only with 9 out of 9, and they have not yet had a full 10 out of 10, so at least one uh, of the PGA has missed before. Uh, we are still waiting on the BAFTA nominees later this week for the first, final say for some categories, but things are looking locked in predictions-wise for the most part. Um, speaking of, uh, my contest for predicting the nominees is still up. Uh, link to that Google form in the show notes. Uh, we only have about a dozen people who have entered, so you, st- you have a good chance at winning. Uh, be sure to sign up before nomination day, and of course, again, tiebreakers are broken by the order in which you submit. Now, if you were looking at those 10 PGA films, you'll notice we haven't talked about four of those films. In fact, those four films are arguably the biggest films of the year this race. Gold Derby is forecasting them to have a combined 47 nominations across the entire race, which would break the all-time record of, about, I believe, 41. Uh, but it very well may happen. All four of them have won something at the Golden Globes, and not only are they great above the line, they also have a lot of masterful technical filmmaking with a lot of Guild nominations going to them as well. They've basically been recognized by every major precursor, and oddly, they have a number of connections, which we'll talk about later this year. Uh, of course, we're talking about the wildly popular, to the tune of about 2.4 billion U.S. combined, uh, Barbenheimer, Barbie and Oppenheimer. We have Scorsese's latest opus in uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, and the Largos Lanthimos to return with uh, Poor Things. Uh, joining us to take on these massive four films, we brought on a, du- a double hitter, a double header this time, the heavy hitters of Classic Movies Lives, um, the hosts Jeff and Pierre, to help you break down why these films have as much acclaim as they do, and whether they're all worth up to the hype. Uh, one quick note, we actually had some technical issues in post-production here, uh, so the audio may sound a little bit different for Pierre's portion, uh, but hopefully it's not too distracting. I actually ended up recording this episode first among of all of the interviews I did this season, uh, but of course, of course is coming out last, but you know, I hadn't seen the other films by the time when I talked about it, so I didn't have as much context for that conversation. That said, you know, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the spoiler-filled discussion of these big four films. Uh, it's about half an Oppenheimer's worth uh, uh, in length, so definitely gotta get going.
All right, and we're back with another year of the Oscars Death Face, and joining us once again for our first episode looking at all of the best picture contenders, we have the very dear friends of the show, Jeff and Pierre from Classic Movie Live, Classic Movies Live. Welcome back, you two. Hey, thanks for having us back. Hey. Awesome. So just for anyone who you know, maybe picked up this show, you know, since since the last time you guys were on. Um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves and introduce uh, what Classic Movies Live is and, you know, just just uh, what, what you guys do in terms of, of movies and, and, and all that. So uh, on Classic Movies Live, we are a uh, we are a pre-recorded show and we like to talk about movies that just came out. Um, we like to uh, we like to talk about classics as they're coming out. That's 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 why it's that's kind of why it's classic movies live. Um, but recently we've been doing a lot more a lot more stuff like that. We just pick a movie and we talk about it at length for uh, usually about an hour. And we most like I said, we mostly do some newer ones, but we've done some really cool episodes. Like we did an episode recently about uh, comparing Monsters Inc. to Training Day. That's part of a series that I'm really excited about getting really heavily into in the next in the new year um we talked about uh we talked about the island of dr moreau recently so we uh we like to branch out and especially um i mean my i know that our interests are very much in like what makes these movies good what makes a classic movie so you know we want to identify that in recent movies but also you know we'd like to step back and talk about movies that somehow have still stood the test of time and figure out how that was yeah you also have like the mini series right about like the different actors and actresses so you had uh kicking it with kendrick and uh what's it, living it with leo or something uh it was losing it over leo which we bring back every time there's a new leonardo dicaprio movie and kicking it with kendrick is a little harder to bring back because those uh those movies they're not those movies those uh, episodes are actually we I try to plan those out pretty meticulously. So I've got ideas for how to bring that one back because she's got a few movies since we stopped, uh, since we finished that, that series. But uh, we need to, I need to spend some time working on guests for those and formats. It's uh, those are, those episodes are very dear to me. She's a, she's a good friend of the show who yeah, I've never had. She has that new one that she has that new film that came out at TIFF also, right? And as well as the Trolls, uh, what's it, reunion, whatever the the NSYNC reunion Trolls movie. Trolls band together and uh, Woman of the Hour, and there's we never got to talk about Alice Darling yet, and she has a new one that's coming to Hulu in January. Oh man, you got a lot of planning to do then. Yeah, I think we mu- I I have some ideas on how to put those together, but well, we need the right guest. At the very least, you guys do have one losing it over Leo with one of the films we'll be talking about later this year, uh, this episode, um, Kills of the Flower Moon. Um, but yeah, Pierre, you know, uh, what about you? How have, how has your year been? You know, what, how, how have you been uh, at the movie theaters? How was your I, I know last time we talked, you weren't sure if you were going to be able to finish the Oscars face last year. Yeah, I thought 2023 was pretty good for movies. Um, like there was a lot of Oscar nominees that really stuck with me um i really liked you know movies like poor things which were very creative and then also mm-hmm. we got some very ambitious movies with um oppenheimer and uh yeah i don't know but i i'd say the biggest thing that interested me this year was probably the box office like mm. looking at the year overall there was some huge bombs um and just and obviously barbenheimer where it was 
composed of two movies that no one expected to do nearly as good as they did. And I think there's just been a huge kind of shift in the, the, the industry in terms of what the studio should be investing in because a lot of these huge franchises just completely bombed. And I think with Barbenheimer, we're starting to see that studios might want to invest differently, especially just because like a lot of, you know, the big, the big blockbusters, like, you know, Aquaman just came out as we're recording this and that's a farewell to the DCEU before James Gunn reboots it. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of a sad way for the DCEU to end. Um, I'm not too fond of the idea of restarting it all over again with the DCU under James Gunn, but you know, we'll see what happens. Um, but I do think there's going to be a major shift in the next few years. All right. Well, that will be for a future season of Class and Goopy's Life to worry about. <laughs> um, but for this episode of the Oscars Death Race podcast, uh, we're going to be going ahead, as I said, and looking at four of the powerhouses this year that I expect to, and I think a lot of people expect to get a lot of nominations, both above and below the line. Um, if you follow Gold Derby, they currently have these four films taking home 47 of the non-sort, non-animated, non-international um, non-documentary uh, potential nominations out of 90, um, which is a little high. I think historically the number's been around, you know, maybe high 30s at best 41. So this would be an all-time record if that were to happen. Um, at the very least, I think I don't think any of these will be going home empty-handed. You guys, you know, we'll, we'll see if you guys agree or disagree. Gold Derby currently has them forecasted for 13 wins among them. Um, you know, there's actually a lot of connections I found between these films as well, kind of looking into it. Um, two of them, you know, are three and a half hour long historical epics uh, going head to head probably for director and adapted screenplay um, the other two you know are philosophical fairy tales of female empowerment and self-actualization uh, two of them happen to Sarah Cinematographer, while the other two has a surprising amount of full frontal nudity and sex uh, going on to them, which I wasn't fully expecting. Um, you know, two of them open up and probably, uh, Pierre, you mentioned the box office, uh, probably the biggest example of fan-driven mar- event marketing for movie weekend I've ever seen, while the other two probably have, you know, the two front runners for the best actress uh, this year. Um, if you can't already tell or you've forgotten or f- forgotten the title of this episode, um, we were talking about Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, Barbie, and Poor Things. We're going to talk about them in chronological order from their debut date. So, Jeff, Pierre, you ready guys to hop in? Yes. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. So we're going to kick off with Killers of the Flower Moon. It's based on the 2017 nonfiction book of the same name by David Grant. This is an epic Western crime drama and it's the latest from legendary director Martin Scorsese. It tells the story of the infamous Osage murders of the 19- in the 1920s Oklahoma. Um, it's co-financed and distributed by Apple TV Plus and Paramount. Premiered at the Cannes Film Festival earlier in May before having its theatrical release on October 20th. It's one of AFI's uh, top 10 films of the year and is actually the National Board of Review's top film of the year overall. It's currently nominated for seven Golden Globes, 12 Critics Movies Awards, Critics Choice Movie Awards, and 12 Satellite Awards. In addition, Metacritic has at 89 for 63 reviews. Um, Rotten Tomatoes has at 93 out of 438 reviews, an average score of 8.5 out of 10. And then Letterboxd has it at 4.18 with 473,000 reviews currently. 
According to Gold Derby, um, it's currently number two for Best Picture. Martin Scorsese is number two for Best Director. Lily Gladstone is number two for Best Actress. Leonardo DiCaprio is number four for Best Actor. Robert De Niro is number two for Supporting Actor. Um, Scorsese and Eric Roth are currently in the lead for Adapted Screenplay. Uh, Rodrigo Prado, who also did the cinematography for Barbie, um, is number currently number two for cinematography for this one. Zachlin West is currently number three for the costume designer. Thomas Sunmaker uh, is currently number two for editing. Makeup and hairstyling, it got shortlisted, currently ranked number five. Zach Fisk is number four for production design. It was shortlisted for its score by the, the late uh, Robbie Robertson, currently ranked number two in Gold Derby. Um, it did have an original song, um, Wazaze, um, which is a song for my people. Unfortunately, it's only listed uh, down at number 14 on Gold Derby. Um, and it's also shortlisted for sound um, at number three on Gold Derby. So altogether, um, this is six above the line nominations, seven below the line nominations, and one forecasted win for adapted screenplay. Um, if you were to average all of these uh, rankings, Ungle Derby. This is about a rank, average rank of two point six one on all of the categories um, that it's in, uh, which is you know pre- pretty competitive, I think. So um, you know, let's start with you, Jeff. What did you think of Killers of the Flower Moon? Uh, I loved this. Um, actually, this episode is going to be. I'm, I'm going to have a hard time talking about a lot of these movies because for a lot of these categories, uh, I can't pick a favorite between these four, and I think that. Um, especially for Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, well, like right with Killers of the Flower Moon, my like tie for best actress is here. Uh, tie for best supporting actor and tie for best score. I think the Robbie Robertson score is incredible in this. And in a lesser year, there would be no contest. But somehow or another, it happened to come out in a year with all the good scores. Yeah, that's that's insane. Um, Pierre, what did what about you? What did you think of 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 uh, Killers of the Flower Moon? Yeah, I thought it was really good. I wouldn't say it's like one of Scorsese's best movies, um, but I really liked how respectful he was of the Osage community and how he that seemed to be his motivating factor. So there's a lot of passion behind the movie, and Leo does a great job in it. Um, Lily Gladstone and Mar- uh, Robert De Niro are great in it. And Jesse Plemons. I think Jesse Plemons is always a great addition to any cast. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was really, really solid. I just wouldn't say it was truly spectacular in any way. And um, I wouldn't say it's a movie. You, that- you so it was kind of like consistently high, but it never really peaked for you at any particular point. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it never blew me away. And I think the movie is great but it's just missing that special thing that really makes it stick out amongst the other nominees i'd say except for brendan fazier that i loved his performance oh my god oh wow that is a that is a hot take for brendan fazier that i've heard i I, most a lot of people i heard have didn't really like his performance what about his performance did, did you like i just thought it was hilarious and it really was captivating in terms of like you know like he wanted to spank leonardo dicaprio um, I just, I, it, it just made him really stick out. And, you know, I think people could say it's like a, too cartoony for the movie. Cause it's, it's a very real movie. Um, but in the end, it's just like Brendan Fraser put in a very unique, memorable performance. And I love seeing him. Hey, if, if Lily Gladstone ends up winning for best actress, uh, it would be Brendan Fraser awarding the, uh, the Oscar to her since he won best actor last year. 
That's beautiful. I just want to see him hold an Oscar. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, so Jeff, you know, what are, what about you? What, what were any, you, you mentioned coming to highlights. Were there any criticisms you had about the film? And, and I know, you know, there's a whole conversation about, you know, whether or not Scorsese should have made this film, whether he's I the right person a, to be telling this film. I'm going to set that aside really... just because we're not, I think like us, I don't think any of us are particularly qualified as say native people to be able to have a, I... a valid comment on that. I fully agree with that. And I think the most infuriating part of that discourse is that almost probably 90% of the opinions I've heard of Scorsese shouldn't have made this because he's not native have come from white people. And it pisses me off so much. Uh, I've read very, very good native uh, reviews of this, like from Osage film critics. And uh, I would, I would, I'll send you some afterwards. Maybe you can link them below. Mm -hmm. Um, They're like, there's a lot of very, really, there's really good film analysis on this and how it works culturally and doesn't work culturally. Yeah. And most of the discourse I hear about it is white people arguing with each other on Twitter, which I think is yeah. like, shut up. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to talk about that stuff. The person, the people who are white people on Twitter who aren't from this, who aren't Osage people or don't native, need to be yeah. talking about it either. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say, right, just the only thing I'll say about this is, one, not necessarily our place to say it, right? That said, I will give him credit that I think toward the ending, right, and there'll be there'll be some spoilers in this episode, but I will say that, like, at, at, at the ending, where Scorsese himself cameos at the end and kind of acknowledges how the Osage were, were uh, kind of appropriated, taken advantage of, and to some degree, he himself is complicit in that, you know, is, I think, I'll give him credit for stepping up and acknowledging that, especially during the mm-hmm. press tour as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I guess to return to your original question, though, I also thought Brendan Fraser was incredible in this. I think that like there's, I I know that I in my head have this idea that a lot of the like worst evil in the world is cartoonish and somehow still manages to get by. Like somehow there are like real cartoon villains who just manage to succeed as cartoon villains and it's a very hard thing to portray in movies because i think that like i mean you can make a a villain who's actually a cartoon but usually that ends up undercutting the seriousness of your movie and i think that killers of the flower moon does a really good job of making all of the most evil people in this who who are robert de niro and his entire entourage feel like a bunch of stooges but also you understand why they were able to do what they were able to do without uh without them without it feeling like a completely ridiculous scenario and yeah. i think that brendan fraser is like the epitome of that he's not he's not the best part of that whole entourage but he is the most cartoonish and he still fits in this world which is really hard to pull off and i think that fraser and de niro not de niro fraser and uh, scorsese managed it i don't know how but it works i i think you guys have given me a whole new appreciation for brendan fraser in this one because i was one of those people who is like not necessarily in love with him but i think this is giving me a good perspective on this just the way same way you guys gave me a new perspective on elvis last year um so i will say um de niro right i i, I can't say i've seen every de niro performance Hands down, I think he's actually my favorite supporting actor the entire year. Um, I don't know who you guys have up against him. I think, obviously, Robert Downey Jr. we'll talk about it in a little bit. But I think De Niro just 
is the cold-hearted, like, psychopathic villain, right, who, like, worms his way, right? And he's just such a powerful force on the, uh, like, it's just the Nero doing the Nero things that I, it's hard to imagine, for me, him not winning, in my opinion. He is possibly the most evil character I have ever seen in a movie. Like, all-time villains list, I think. Yes, and I think that, like, in terms of performance, there's there's only we'll talk about Robert Downey Jr. when we get there. The only thing that's missing for me, like the tiebreaker between them for me, is that Robert Downey Jr. has a single moment where I, that I think about every single day, and and Robert De Niro does not have that moment. He's yeah. got a fantastic performance, yeah. but like there's a tiebreaker, and it goes to Robert Downey Jr. in my mind, and we'll talk about that. Okay. Okay. What did Pierre? What did you think of of Leo? Right. You said you, it wasn't his favorite his favorite performance. I, my thought on Leo is that he was okay. Right. I think I think this is really mostly just playing against type. Right. Like normally Leo plays the suave, charming, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, charismatic individual. Here, right, he kind of comes across as like kind of like a sniveling, know nothing, you know, almost a coward, basically. Right. And I think part of the you know acting here is that oh. Leo's playing against his type, which is, you know, fair. And there is some subtlety, I think. You know, I think he there is, like, that tension of he loves, you know, Lily Gladstone's character, but is also kind of beholden to De Niro and kind of how he's playing with those two. I just don't think it was quite as strong a lead performance, say, as, um, as, as others. Yeah, I, like, okay, don't get me wrong. I loved Leo's performance in this movie. I thought it was very good, you know. Leo is obviously in a very developed stage in his career where I think any performance he's given, he can really knock out of the yeah, park. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just say that on a similar line with Jeff is just that like nothing really stuck out to me. And I, well, maybe that's just the movie in general, but like Leo never had that moment or multiple moments where I'm just like, wow, like I can't believe uh, this is happening. You know, like this, this is amazing <laughs> acting. And uh, like maybe there's that one there's a one scene where he's arguing with uh, Molly Lily Gladstone, um, but overall like I don't think it was too challenging of a role for him, and it was too against type. Like we've seen him, we saw him play like a very against type. I'd say more so in Don't Look Up, where he was also kind of the sniveling, uh, I guess whiny scientist that wants just wants to get attention you know and i thought he was actually he he did unfortunately it was a bad movie but i thought he did very well in that and there was more moments where i was i was captivated uh, again this this performance is perfect or it's like it's great there's nothing wrong with it i just wish there was a little more to it than what we got on screen and because of that, i don't think he's gonna win yeah i don't think so i will say yeah i agree Lily glad okay so where do you guys fall both of you on the uh, Lily Gladstone should be lead versus supporting uh, argument. Do you think she was a lead, uh, did enough to be lead, even though her screen time was less? Um, I have my thoughts, but what, what do you guys think? Yeah, she's the heart of the movie. Like, she's a, it's just like Michelle Williams last year. People are like, oh, she's supporting, but no, she's the main part of the movie. So, like, I think that with Lily Gladstone as well, you know, it would be almost insulting to call her a supporting performance here when she is the core of the movie in my opinion when i watched it that was what i felt yeah pierre i kind of disagree again like i i think she gave a performance worthy of a and an, like an oscar win i think she was just amazing and she had so much gravitas uh 
for a scene a character that i don't think got enough screen time and i think she could have got more which is why i don't think she was a main character like the plot wasn't really revolving around her actions she was more of a reactive character Whereas I feel like Leo was instigating a lot of the plot. I would disagree. I I disagree that she's a reactive character. I like. I think, for example, her going to to Washington to try to take care of this, right? I think, like, narratively, it's structured around you know the kind of the relationship between her and Leo, right? I think that that's even if she's not necessarily on screen, her presence is felt. I think throughout, right? And I think her impact is felt throughout. Um, and like 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 Jeff said, I see I see her as the heart of this. So I I'm of the I'm with Jeff in the uh, in the she's the she's the lead role. Um, but regardless, I I'm pretty sure she'll probably end based on the way that precursors have been going. She's been getting nominated for lead categories more so than supporting. So I think that's just where things are going to end up. Um, before we you know kind of wrap on uh, on kills the flower moon. Anything else on the uh, technical side of things? I mean, obviously, Thelma Soonmacher having to edit a three and a half hour film. Um, you know, I think she'll probably get an edit not for that i agree robbie robertson as the score just kind of like the beating drums in the background constantly um mm-hmm. really adds something to this as well but anything else in terms of uh in terms of um a technical stuff that's not for for either of you guys i think the cinematography and the production design were really good specifically the cinematography this movie has so many good individual shots in it and beyond just the good individual shots, it just looks good the whole way through. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very good looking movie. Um, and yeah, I think the cinematography is pretty amazing. Same with the editing. I think this movie, I mean, you already talked about it, so I won't dwell on it, but this movie just goes. Like it, it, I felt like it really felt its length. I felt its length, but I didn't feel bored with that length. Yeah. Like I felt like I had spent a day at the movies and I was glad to have done that. Yeah. I, I saw this, you know, I happened to be traveling with my wife when she had like uh, some training in Atlanta. So I, you know, while she was busy doing training, I went to, you know, go watch Close of the Flower Moon for three hours and it was a great time. Um, Pierre, anything on the technical side for you that stood out? Yeah. Cinematography wise, I thought it looked really good. There's some really great shots in it. Uh, music wise, I can't really remember a lot of the music, honestly, not that it's bad. It's just like, I think it, it never really like came above the script, if that makes sense. Um, production design, I thought was great. It was really well done. I mean, even that like room, the room with the paddle was really fun to look at. Uh, yeah, they did a great okay. job okay. overall. It's a well done movie. Okay, well, we will get into I think as the main competition, right? So in my head, right, I think like this one and Oppenheimer are competing primarily. I think these are the front runners for picture director adapted screenplay. Um, it's where they're kind of going head to head most directly in terms of competition, and then obviously a lot of technicals down there as well. But moving to Oppenheimer, um, you know, this is the newest Chris Nolan film since Tenet. Um, it's an epic biographical thriller based on the 2005 biography American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin J. Serwin about the so-called father of the atomic bomb, J. Robert Oppenheimer. Um, it's also the first film from Christopher Nolan since he left Warner Brothers, um, and this was produced and distributed by Universal, releasing on July 21st, early this year, aka Barbenheimer Day, ironically against Warner, Warner Brothers. Um, Barbie. Um, in addition to you know opening to making thus far nine hundred fifty million dollars worldwide, who would have thought a which who would have thought a three hour 
black and white biopic would have gotten $950 million. Um, you know, it is also uh, one of NBR and AFI's top 10 films of the year. It's currently up for eight Golden Globes, 13 Critics' Choice Movie Awards, and 13 Satellite Awards, including it's already won, in addition to having already won the Best Ensemble Award for the Satellite Awards, being the only nominee. Um, on Metacritic, it has an 89 out of 69 reviews, um, same as Close to the Flower Moon. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, again, exact same score, 93 out of 484 reviews, slightly higher average score, 8.6 out of 10. And on the letterbox, it is uh, slightly higher, 4.28, um, based off of 1.4 million reviews. Uh, it's currently in the lead for many, many categories, according to Gold Derby. Number one for Best Picture. Number one for Director for Chris Nolan. Number one for Best Actor for Killian Murphy. Uh, number three for Supporting Actress for Emily Blunt. Number one for Supporting Actor Robert Downey Jr. Number two for Adapted Screenplay by Chris Nolan. Uh, number one for Cinematography, Hoyte Van Hoytema. Number one for Editing for Jennifer Lame. Number three for sort uh, for the Sortlisted category, Makeup and Hairstyling. Number three for Ruth Dujong in Production Design. Uh, number one in the Sortlisted category of Score for the legendary Ludwig Goranson, um, and then number one for best sound as well, which is a sortless category. Average ranking for those is 1.58, which is you know lower than the 2.61 for Kills of the Flower Moon. Currently up for six above the line awards and then uh, six below the line rewards. But uh, Gold Derby currently has this at eight wins, um, which would be um, I'm not exactly sure if that's a record or not. If it were to get eight, get eight wins, would be very very impressive if it was able to do that. So um, we start with Jeff last time, Pierre. What were your thoughts on Oppenheimer? Actually, more important question. Which did you watch first, Oppenheimer or Barbenheimer or Barbie? Oh, that was a messy day. I tried to watch both on the same day, uh, but, oh, geez, what happened? It was like I tr- I watched Oppenheimer first, and I believe that's the correct order, Oppenheimer and Barbie, you know, something to lighten the mood after. Um, and, yeah, I bought tickets to Barbie, and then I showed up at the theater because I went to a different theater to watch Barbie. And I had the wrong theater tickets because there's another theater with the exact same time. So I had to go watch No Hard Feelings instead. Uh, and then I watched Barbie later. And No Hard Feelings is actually not bad. So I'm happy to watch that. Um, in, in terms of Oppenheimer, I I liked it a lot. I, th- I think it's a very well done movie. Um, I'm a huge Christopher Nolan fan. So it's always nice to see his style in the theater. I think his movies are made for the theater. But I don't know. I just It didn't really click for me as much as it did for other people. And I think it's just because it's just so relentlessly packed with information. And like, obviously, like, it makes sense because it's it's covering a, a vast amount of time and it's a very dense um, topic. But, you know, things like other characters getting their own subplots focused on kind of flew under the radar I wish because like Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh had great performances. I wish we got more time with them because I thought they were actually quite interesting to Oppenheimer's stormy story. But yeah, production wise, this movie is absolutely amazing. Jeff, what are your thoughts? Uh, we haven't released them publicly yet, but uh, both Pierre and I have top 10 lists for this year. And of the four movies we're talking about today, uh, Oppenheimer is the only one of them online. And it's okay. very high. I was I was blown away by this movie. I've only seen it three times. Only three um, times. <laughs> only three times. But I've uh, I managed to catch it in IMAX. I managed to catch it in uh, like a small little VIP theater, and I caught it in seventy millimeter. 
I never caught it in IMAX 70 millimeter because I think there's only one there's only one theater in Ontario that has that. And it's, you know, all things considered, shockingly close, but I don't have a car, so it's not close enough. Um, anyway, I was I was blown away by this the first time I saw it, and the next times that I saw it, like, it remained as good. I think I, I think I agree with Pierre when it when he says it ramps up and then it just kind of stays there. Uh, but I like being on the edge of my seat for the full three hours. I thought that was wild when this movie when this movie finishes. I'm like, oh my god, it's been three hours. What? It's I uh, I didn't with this one. I barely felt the length, and I know that's not everyone's experience. But for me, this movie goes by so quick, and it's so tense. And there's so much good in this. Uh, it's it's not perfect, but it is uh, for me. It is very close. Did you did you do Barbie and Oppenheimer back to back or no? Yes, we started with Oppenheimer and then we went into Barbie. And I don't know if that was the right decision. Like I think that uh, when I've watched Oppenheimer since, I really have appreciated being able to just sit with Oppenheimer for a bit. Um, and I liked Barbie. We'll talk about that, but I liked Barbie after Oppenheimer still, but I think you might want to go the other way around personally, although I haven't tried the other way around. So I don't know that part from experience. I just know that the way I did it didn't quite seem right. Yeah. For me, I, so I actually did not watch it opening weekend because I wasn't able to secure tickets for Barbie for the exact same day as Oppenheimer. So what I ended up doing was I waited for a week until I could guarantee getting them in the because there's the Lincoln Center AMC here in New York that does have like the true size IMAX. So I wanted to I know I definitely wanted to watch Oppenheimer there and then Barbie in the same theater. So I was only able to get the back to back tickets like for the weekend after. So I did Oppenheimer first and then did Barbie. Um, yeah, def- I think. I think probably we'll get to the Barbie. I think Barbie has just as much of a bit of a downer ending or, or, or a philosophical ending. I think as much as uh Oppen- as much as Oppenheimer does. So we'll, we'll we'll talk about that later. But yeah, I mean, I currently have Oppenheimer as my best picture winner. Frankly speaking, um, favorite of the year. I don't know if it's there, but I think it's definitely in my top ten list for sure. Um, frankly, I would say. Probably three. I, I don't know. It's definitely in my top ten. I don't know. Where, I don't know where the other three. I haven't put together that list yet for myself because I still have a lot of movies I want to try to cram in before the end of the year. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, I think for me, what really stood out was I think the the, the screenplay for me. Um, it kind of reminds me a lot of, in a lot of ways of um, Greta Gerwig's Little Woman, actually, right um, from a couple of years back, where it kind of does the non-linear, you know present present and past kind of interwoven together to kind of comment on each other um one thing which i don't think a lot of people realize that i've i i've talking to them about it is you know they have the the black and white segments they're titled fission right which is you know the splitting of the atom bomb which is what the first atom bomb was about and then the second half in color which is about you know levi strauss and, and robert downey jr's character is called fusion right the other way around Levi's, uh, Louis Strauss is in black and white. That's fusion. Oh, right. Black and white. But, but there's one's yeah. fusion, one's fission, right? Yeah. Fission, fission is about Oppenheimer. Fusion is about Levi Strauss. And it's about how 
essentially it's the implosion of both of these men's career, right? So to speak, the explosion of these men's career. And as they mentioned in the film, you know, you can't have a fusion bomb without a fission bomb triggering it, right? So I thought it was, you know, maybe this is a little surface level, but it's really interesting for me how the explosion of Oppenheimer's career ultimately led to the explosion of Levi Strauss's career basically, or Louis Strauss's career later on and how it's intertwined in that particular way, screenplay-wise. So, you know, as much as, you know, I've heard people say, hey, you know, I maybe maybe Scorsese and uh, and, and Nolan split director picture and then and then uh, Oppenheimer, most people say, seem to think Oppenheimer will get best picture. Um, you know, I it's hard for me to really say, though, that, you know, deservedly, I think, honestly, directing wise chris nolan is the superior director and screenplay for me personally would you guys fall on that on that thought yeah well i can't deny that oppenheimer isn't an extremely well-made movie like chris nolan's an amazing director uh production wise and then also like the script itself is extremely ambitious which i love to see as well well it's also that he wrote it in, he wrote it in first person which is wild to me that he wrote oppenheimer in first person i mean i don't know i'm, I'm a sucker for like those non-traditional non-linear storytelling the way it goes like on the back and forth so that's maybe my own bias kind of seeping in there for the screenplay yeah it's i don't know it's a great screenplay i i just feel like he does this style a lot you know of screenplay not that i say like it's extremely ambitious and i love how Christopher Nolan doesn't usually just settle on like a linear plot structure. Um, that makes, that's part of his style. It makes him very unique, but I, I just feel like the, the unlinear story is better told or he's done it better in other movies. I think here I found it confusing personally. Okay. Fair enough. And uh, yeah, I don't know, but it's, it's a great script. It's jam packed with so much stuff. And um I think he directed the hell out of it either way. Okay. Jeff, what do you think on the screenplay director? Yeah, I don't know. I think they're like, I don't know. I, I think Chris, this is very strong directing from Christopher Nolan and it's a very interesting screenplay. But for me, like the, I would, I would say that like the biggest part of Oppenheimer is in the performances and that's not to take away from the director and from the directing and the screenplay. But the question, as I heard it, is specifically comparing the directing and the screenplay to Killers of the Flower Moon. And I think they are basically on equal footing. And if I had to pick a winner for both of those, I would pick Killers of the Flower Moon. Interesting. Yeah, this is going to be a very tight race, I think, either way. Um, so you mentioned the performances. Let's let's go through those. So acting, obviously, Killian Murphy, he's kind of the favorite right now. Um, do you think any do either of you think anyone can match up to where, where Killian Murphy is in portraying Oppenheimer? What did you like? What didn't you like about his performance? Oh, man. I mean, he's incredible in this. This is I mean, it's the main it's probably the first time that I've personally seen Killian Murphy in a majorly starring role like not as a supporting character so uh that definitely colors my perception of this being this is this is the best performance i've seen from him and the thing is a part of that is because it's the meatiest performance i've seen from him but he also so thoroughly owns this performance it's incredible i think that the way that what he's able to bring to oppenheimer especially in the scenes where he doesn't even where he's not even talking just like long shots and close-ups and stuff what he's able to bring to those to that character visually is already so interesting 
and then, you know, add to that the way that he's able to sort of communicate this character that you never quite feel like you know, but you always, but you're frustrated about that in the same way as like Benny Safdie's character is. I I think that like, I think he creates such an interesting real character who's so actually frustrating to watch, but in a human way, like he's a, it's an amazing performance to watch. It's an incredibly infuriating man to watch though. Right. And I think, I think it's, it's also very interesting because obviously he's the main protagonist, right? Um, and, and, you know, in a lesser screen playwright and a lesser actor, you would want, they would want to make their lead protagonist seem like a good guy, seem like the hero, right? And here they don't do that. They show how he was like a, a man with his flaws and, and arrogance and to some degree his his hyper-focus on the science of it and not on necessarily the implications, at least earlier on, and kind of, you know, the foolishness that perhaps thinking that he could control it afterwards, right? Um, I don't think you could make a more effective condemnation of Oppenheimer than this movie. Like, you could make a movie yeah. where um, Oppenheimer is a cartoon villain, but it wouldn't be an effective condemnation of, like, of telling us, like, why this guy was actually was actually not someone we should look up to very well, very but much. At the same and time, this movie does that. But at the same time, he's not like a. It's not like you. It's not like you could like, like he think he's like a cartoon villain in the same way that yeah. Robert Downey, Robert De Niro's character was right. So it's like such a fine line to draw between not seeming like a cartoon villain, but also not seeming like a complete good guy, but not being that bad a guy like he has his he's a great man but he's not like a good man per se right but not a cartoonist villainly bad it's so hard to communicate right yeah i don't know how to communicate this but that's specifically why i said i don't think you could make a more effective condemnation because you could make oppenheimer seem evil if you wanted to write the movie that way but the way that the movie is written oppenheimer seems like a like this is this movie is sort of about the evils of never picking a side of just always being a fence sitter. And it makes Oppenheimer seem like a pathetic wet blanket for most of the movie, despite showing that he specifically is not pathetic in the ways that you end up. He's not a wet blanket. It's so nuanced. I love it. I love the world. The more I talk, the more I talk about it, the more I'm just convinced it's going to be Killian Murphy who takes it home at the end of the day. What, what do you think, uh, Pierre? Is there anyone who you think could, could match up against Killian Murphy for Best Actor? Uh, to be fair, I haven't seen too many of the potential Best Actor nominees, but I yeah, I thought he was good. Um, I just feel like his role or his performance never truly clicked for me. Um, I think Killian's a great actor, and I've seen him in other roles that I absolutely love him in. I think I prefer him in more... Um, I guess unsubtle roles. It's a very subtle role. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I I think he's great. I think he'll probably win. But I think my favorite part about Oppenheimer are the technical aspects. I'll go into that as well, right? Which sound sound designing and editing for Jennifer Lame. I think are also like it, like again, editing is going to be a very difficult category this year between this and then Selma Sundmacher, um and many other films as well. I'm sure. But yeah, I mean, sound I think is definitely a front runner here for sure. Um, Jeff, you mentioned that Robert Downey Jr. was kind of head in head with Robert De Niro for you for supporting actor, and the tiebreaker for you right now is one specifically. Where was that scene for you that that brought there's, it together? 
there's a scene that happens twice in the movie. Like the actual scene I'm going to talk about only happens once. The moment only happens once. But there's a scene where they're talking about, uh, they're at a boardroom. It is uh, in the middle of the Cold War. And they're talking about uh, evidence that the Russians have just fired a nuke or detonated a nuke. And um, Oppenheimer is trying to say, it's not that serious. We shouldn't think about this. We should work towards disarmament. And uh, Robert Downey Jr., uh, Louis Strauss, is his enemy in this room. He thinks the exact opposite. He thinks that this is why we need to make more nukes so that we can kill the Russians first. Um, And there's a moment when he's like, commenting on what Robert on what Oppenheimer's been saying and he does this little thing with his mouth where he goes before like between words and then continues his sentence and it's so like it's just this tiny moment that displays so much contempt for Oppenheimer that the entire movie is building up to and that's not even the point where it's supposed to come out but it just sort of escapes really quick in this tiny argument he's having where he's trying to make his point and can't contain himself from just like having this vicious little exhale that he does halfway between words to like emphasize that we need to be building more nukes. And like that moment to me, I think about that moment every single day. I don't know how to effectively communicate how incredible, like just that tiny, tiny scene is. And like that scene, that tiny moment only works because the rest of Robert Downey Jr.'s performance as Louis Strauss is already so good. And it feels like just a tiny bit of the character is escaping there that he's not intending or that at least the character is not intending, but is like such a, I just find that such an insanely powerful moment that communicates his entire character in a third of a second. Interesting, right? I that was not what I was expecting you to say, right? I mean, I think just the whole Robert, like Robert Downey Jr., is kind of almost the antithesis of of um of of Robert De Niro's character, right? Where maybe it's it's also partly the screenplay, right? Like the Robert De Niro character in Kills the Flower Moon, you're supposed to know that he's warming his way and that he's not a great guy. He's a cartoonishly evil guy, and then but on the surface of the Osage people, he's warming his way and he's speaking their language. Um, here, partly again because of the screenplay, like the fact that it was Robert Downey Jr. who was kind of undermining Oppenheimer's career, right at that point, is is kind of like the twist at the end, which I personally did not see coming, right? Same. Um, even though this is history, and you probably could have researched and found it all out, but yeah. the fact that they, he was able to play, oh, I am a supporter of of Oppenheimer for so long, basically. Um, and and seem like the good guy, and seem that seem like like you said, he was setting up the condemnation of Oppenheimer as this flawed guy, and then the twist happens, and it's real. He's kind of like the backstabbing traitor. Is almost like, damn, that's kind of probably what the perspective of of Robert Downey Jr. Robert De Niro's character was, if for somebody in that time period, right? It's like he's able to pull that off so well, and oh my god, yeah, like well, until I saw I mean, Robert De Niro, Robert Downey Jr. was my supporting actor lead of choice. And, and what you're saying is like, I mean, that's, that's exactly it. Uh, but because Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Louis Strauss, is he spends so much time playing the good guy and it becomes that twist at the end. That one moment where he's like viciously arguing with uh, Oppenheimer true, and, right? has that, like, and has that little like, 
It's like that tiny, tiny moment is the one time when he can't hide his contempt for Oppenheimer. Like every other time, right to the very end of the movie, he hides his contempt for Oppenheimer and it's a core part of his character that he can't let people, he needs people to think that he's been a supporter this whole time. Not one moment is the time when it's very clear that he's not. And it just sort of sort of escapes. It's almost involuntary. That's something you would only pick up after three times watching it, isn't it? <laughs> I, I picked it up on the second time. I, I noticed it on the first time. I was like, that's a really weird thing he did. And on the second time, I was like, oh. And then the third time, I was like specifically waiting for that because it's my it's my favorite moment of the movie. Okay. Um, we've talked a lot about Oppenheimer a lot. And obviously, it's a technical powerhouse, kind of like Dune was a couple of years ago, I think. Anything specific here? Obviously, production design, right? They, they said in the movie, build a town, build it fast. They basically built a town and built it fast, right? A lot more interesting than uh, last year's Fablemans with recreating a high school, right, Jeff? Yeah, this was uh, this was a much more interesting town. Um, where, do you, where do you guys come in on Ludwig Gorenson's score for this versus, say, um, you know, Rob, Robbie Robertson's for Killers of the Flower Moon? Because um, most people currently have Ludwig as, as the forerunner right now. Yeah, I've been a big Ludwig fan for a long time. I think I first enjoyed his work in Community, where he has some really fun stuff going on there. <laughs> and then I okay. think uh, Black Panther was really... And I guess The Mandalorian is where he really... In this movie, I feel like his score doesn't really stick out to me, but that's because it's so intricately intertwined with the editing and the plot, which is quite interesting in itself. Yeah, it's yeah. remarkably impressive. Uh, I think it's a it's a flashier score, and I think it works for the movie because the movie is, like, by design, much flashier than Killers mm-hmm. of the Flower Moon. Um, and it's very good. I would not be surprised to see this one win. I personally think that the Killers of the Flower Moon score is... I think it's way more effective to for me. And also, I like it more because it's more my style of music. Okay, so, yeah, I, I like Robbie Robertson better in this in this category. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, cinematography, I mean, Jorge Van Hoytema kind of gets revenge for not getting nominated for uh, for Nope last year. Um, so gets that, get, again, great cinematography. I think I've seen a couple films since then, actually, where I like the cinematography of other stuff better than this. What do you guys think? Any better cinematography out there this year? I mean, Killers of the Flower Moon is still really good. This is this is very good. Um, you know, if I I can't think of anything off the top of my head where I'm like, oh no, actually, this other thing should be the cinematography winner. I think this is a pretty solid choice. And also, uh, I was very mad about Nope not getting. Uh, nominated specifically for Hoyt Van Hoytema and his accomplishments. Like I think that with for Nope, he should have gotten he should have gotten like the technical achievement Oscar that they only give out every couple of years. I because the, he invented new techniques to shoot that movie. Oh wow! And I think that like uh, I you know if he wins for Oppenheimer, fantastic because deserved for this movie, and also that would you know make it that would make not being nominated for Nope a little better. Okay. Uh, what do you guys think? Last one before. Uh, we haven't mentioned her yet. Emily Blunt, right? Obviously, he, he has that one scene during the interrogation where she absolutely kills it. Um, obviously, she is also present throughout the film. Obviously, a much smaller presence than, say, Lily Gladstone was in, uh, in Kills of the Flower Moon. Um, do you think she's going to get a nomination for Supporting Actress? I know that category is kind of relatively relatively wild open, as, wide open aside from, um, you know, uh, Joy Randolph for The Holdovers. 
I yeah, I really liked Emily Blunt in this movie. I don't usually like love her in movies, but I think she did amazing considering her screen time. I just wish she had more time to really show her stuff and they gave her more of a uh, plot arc because with that, I think with her performance, she could win for sure. Jeff? Yeah, I, I mostly agree. I think she's handicapped a bit by the fact that uh, she's a woman in a Christopher Nolan movie. So she doesn't have that much to do, but the screen time that she does have, she uses really well and it's an incredible performance. Well, speaking of women uh, and not getting much to do, we're going to do the opposite of that and talk about Barbie now. Um, based on, of course, the popular fashion dolls from Mattel, this fantasy comedy is the first live-action Barbie movie uh, that follows the characters of Ken and Barbie as they leave Barbie world for the real world and following an existential crisis. Um, and they discover the patriarchy and kind of all of that fun stuff. Um, as we noted, it released alongside Oppenheimer on July 21st, uh, making it, and it is currently the highest-grossing film of the year, $1.44 billion dollars which i don't think anyone saw coming at the beginning of the year um it's this is currently the highest for a solo female director and also the highest grossing warner brothers film of all time um and the 14th highest grossing movie ever um in addition it is also both an nbr and afi top film of the film of the year has up for nine golden globes 18 critics choice movie awards and 10 satellite awards as well as 12 grammys um it's a little, slightly lower rated than the first two films on uh, the various review sites um 80 out of 67 reviews on metacritic 88 out of 486 reviews on Modern Tomatoes with 7.9 out of 10. 3.96 on Letterboxd, though, by far many more views, 2 million views. Uh, Gold Derby currently has it as number three for Best Picture, number four for director Greta Gerwig, number five for Margot Robbie for Best Actress. Uh, uh, America Ferrera is, is kind of hanging out in there, number six for Supporting Actress. Uh, Ryan Gosling is currently number four for Supporting Actor. Uh, Greta Gerwig and her, and her, I believe she just got married officially, uh, Noah Baumbach, part, uh, husband, um, uh, is up third for original screenplay, the only original screenplay we'll talk about today. Uh, Jacqueline Duran is number one for costume design. Uh, Nick Horry, number four for editing. Sarah Greenwood, number one for production design. Uh, Mark Ronson and Andrew Wyatt are number 11, sortlisted for score. Um, and then it has three songs sortlisted. Um, the Billie Eilish song, what, I, what Was I Made For, at currently number one. Mark Ronson and Ryan, and Ryan Gosling with I'm Just Ken at number two. And then the Dua Lipa song, uh, Dance the Night Away as well, I believe is uh, currently number three on Gold Derby. The only two of them will make it in the final day. Um, and then Best Sound is uh, currently sortlisted as well for number eight. Um, average ranking of these is about 3.1, um, so lower than the other two. Um, we're coming in with five above the line, three below the line, but also three wins. Um, so, um, yeah, so obviously this is the film it sounds like that we saw secondly uh, after Oppenheimer altogether. So, um, Jeff, you again, what did you think of Barbie overall after seeing Oppenheimer? Oh, this is great. I've, I've seen this movie. I've, I've seen this movie twice. Uh, and I don't think it holds up quite as well as the last two movies that we've seen. Well, I can't speak for Killers of the Flower Moon because I've only seen that once. It doesn't hold up on repeated viewings quite as well as Oppenheimer to me. Um, but I am so happy to see this movie here. Uh, I think that uh, this was this was really cool. I um, don't remember if I expected to like it as much as I did, but I did like it a lot, and I will be very happy to see, you know, in a movie filled, uh, not a movie, in a year filled with a lot of very dour movies, uh, the fact that Barbie could also be on, could also snag a bunch of Oscar nominations and even potentially wins among movies like Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon and even to some degree Poor Things 
Uh, this is a very, it's, it, that's, that's really cool. I'm just glad that this is here. Yeah. Pierre, what did you think of Barbie? Uh, I thought it was a fun movie. Like, it's okay. I obviously am not the target audience, but um, I, I really respect the directing and the production design and a lot of the acting in it was really well done. Um, I think the themes are quite interesting. Um, but I think the biggest thing for me is just that it's a, uh, I feel like one of the first female blockbusters and I think its effect on the industry is going to be really interesting to watch in the future. Um, yeah, I like it on that aspect. Interesting. So my thoughts on it, I think overall, fun movie overall, right? I think, you know, it definitely is kind of like starter pack feminism to some degree, right? Where it, it for me, I think, I think it, for me, I think my biggest critique of the film is that it tried to do a lot and I don't think it did any of it particularly deeply, right? For example, there's the one scene that the reason that America Ferrera is kind of like in the conversation for supporting actress, that like monologue scene about like what it is to be a woman in the moment um, is... I, I, it's 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 a great moment on the surface. I think it's very tell not so to some degree, right? And I think that's a lot of what the movie is doing to some degree, right? Um, and it feels like they wanted to get deeper into these ideas, and there are potentially some constraints, I think, around just how much they could do into like a two-hour movie, right? This doesn't have the same run time as Oppenheimer, which would be insane to watch two three-hour movies back to back. So on that front, I think. It, it sought for the fences. It maybe didn't quite get there, but it got, I think, further than a lot of people expected, I think. Well, in fairness, it is a movie about dolls for children. Yeah. Which isn't me saying that, like, that's not me trying to be, uh, trying to diminish the movie in any way. I'm saying that I think that this movie is, like, I think it should be starter pack feminism. Like, it yeah. shouldn't, it, it really doesn't have... If it doesn't go deeper than that, that's okay because like this is this is many people's introduction and like I think it's a very it's a very clever and um, effective subversive? in I was gonna say effective maybe subversive it's a very effective uh, introduction to the idea of toxic masculinity for people who don't know what that is yeah um, so like I I can only come at this movie from um, from the perspective of watching it as a man. Yeah. But I, I we're three feel, guys talking about the Barbie movie right now. Yeah. But I do feel that like as a man going into it, it had a lot for me. I'm almost like a little surprised. I'm like, I I I hope that women got the same out of it because to me it felt like it was written for men my age. And like, you know, that's that's fine, but I I hope that I hope that I'm the only person who thinks that. Yeah, I think for me, I think again, not again, not to make a movie that obviously is somewhat geared toward women a little bit more, which I think is a lot is a big reason for success. I think a lot of the reason that a lot of blockbusters in recent years haven't been doing as well is because they have been kind of heavily focusing on the male, you know, the male eighteen to thirty five demographic, right? And films that haven't been, for example, Five Nights at Freddy's targeted a younger demographic. This one targeting, uh, you know, a more female demographic. You know, doing better at the box office than expected. I think, you know, not to make, like, obviously the film is, is that's the target audience to some degree, but for me, it's like, okay, the Ryan Gosling character, fun character for sure, right? What's the takeaway that you're supposed to take away from his whole adventure in the patriarchy, basically, right? Like, I feel, I feel, I feel like 
for me, when I say it's like it swung and it, it fell a little bit sort of like they tried to put so much into here. I did get a satisfying conclusion to all of the plot points, which maybe is the point that, hey, the problems of feminism and patriarchy and all or problems that feminism are trying to deal with, such as the patriarchy and all that aren't so easily resolved. But at the same time, it did kind of feel, oh, it's so easily resolved at the end. Right. So I don't know. It feels it feels overstuffed and underbaked to some degree for me. Not that it was a bad movie. It was an enjoyable movie. I don't know. That That's my thought on the screenplay specifically, I think. Yeah, I guess at the very end, they sort of solve the issues of the movie. But hopefully the takeaway is not that the issues of the movie are the issues fully of the real world and can be solved easily. Yeah, or like the whole like, oh, Mattel, we're going to like, I, I it felt... I don't know. It, 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 to, to draw a comparison, right, to the Lego movie to some degree, right? Mm. Like, again, Will, Will Ferrell playing a, a embattled uh, CEO of a toy company, right? Um, mm. Like, he, his perspective, like, I don't know. I felt like the Lego movie had, was able to tell kind of like similar stories to something about using toys as a metaphor, right? About actualization and, and, and confidence, how you go about play and, and all of this, right? Um, but then, it came out in the end that, oh, well, okay, Mattel will just sell a lot more Barbie dolls and Barbie clothes. They're selling officially licensed I Am Kenuff merch, right? Which, you know, there is, I don't know, one of my favorite lines was the whole Barbie is consumerism, total fascism, basically, right? Like that whole segment at the end, in, in the middle there. Like, I don't know, This it's been a while since I've seen Barbie. I haven't watched it since I first saw it in theaters. Um, so maybe I'm forgetting some stuff. But I don't know. My impression from what I remember is just, yeah, I think I feel like this, this swung a lot on the screenplay, felt a little bit sore. It's still a fun performance. On the technical side, like production design, costume design, top-notch, fully expect them to get nominated. Uh, and and I probably win for production design, right? I don't know about costumes per se, but... Um, and then obviously the songs are just like bops that have just been with us throughout. I'm not quite... I'm not, I don't know how I feel about I'm Just Ken getting being potential favorite to get nominated, but we'll see. Anyway, what what do you guys thought? What are your guys thoughts following up on my my bit of a ramble there? Well, yeah, I think Barbie's just really unique because it's um, a blockbuster made with the talents of uh, an Oscar winning director, you know, um, which I think makes it very unique. And it's obviously it's it's very well made for a blockbuster in terms of production design, cinematography. It's got an amazing cast. Um, the themes are actually like. Uh, you know, relatively deep, uh, which I enjoyed as well. And, um, yeah, there's a lot going for it. And, I, uh, I wouldn't say I like, I'm surprised that it's so hyped up by the, the awards, uh, ceremonies, but I mean, that's just because it's, it's been a cultural phenomenon in a lot of ways. And I think it's just so big that <laughs> it's kind of like black Panther or top gun where the, the Oscars literally cannot ignore it, you know? Um, and I think it's just amazing that Greta Gerwig has been able to transition into blockbuster filmmaking. I feel like that's a transition uh, very few directors are able to do so successfully. And she's obviously shown herself to be to have quite an interesting wheelhouse of talent. Uh, I was going to say, I guess the comparison would be like Chloe Zhao trying to do a blockbuster with the Eternals and that not really working out for them. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like the. It's a completely different skill set, you know, to make a blockbuster, an appealing blockbuster. Um, and yeah, when we saw that with Chloe Zhao, that didn't work out too well. But Greta Gerwig, uh, she has shown that she has the versatility and she's going to have a massive career ahead of her. 
Uh, not that she already doesn't have a massive career <laughs> behind her right now. Before we leave off of Barbie, then, um, I think honestly, oh, actually, I will. I, another question, actually, would you, do you guys think Margot Robbie is strong enough to get into? Uh, best actress. It's a pretty strong category this year. Um, she's kind of like hanging around in like the fifth, sixth plot, fifth, fifth, sixth spot um, on Gold Derby currently. So, would you guys have Margot Robbie here? Five or six sounds right. Like maybe, maybe she can get in. She's a notable performance, but I don't think that she's that. I don't think this is one of her stronger performances. I think it's fine. She's good in it, and I don't think she's even the highlight of the movie. Interesting. And then obviously um, Ryan Gosling as well, right? What do you, what did you think of Ryan Gosling, Pierre? I thought Ryan Gosling was good. I, I don't think it was an Oscar performance. Like it's a very fun role and he plays a very fun comedic Ken. And it has, again, a surprising amount of depth to it, to the character. Um, but in, in comparing it to some of these other performances, like I, I don't think this was a, a challenging role for Ryan Gosling. It looks like a very fun role and he did a great job, but yeah. Ryan Gosling is my hope diction. If anyone, if if I got to choose who wins, uh, I I would choose Ryan Gosling. I would choose Ryan Gosling first. I think his performance is a little bit less strong than it's obviously less strong than like Robert Downey Jr. But I think it's a way fun. I think I I love comedic performances at the Oscars, and I think that his was an extremely strong comedic performance. I, I would say I think my thought is that. Uh, kills the flower moon and uh, you know the two Roberts um, are both technically superior performances Ryan Gosling is just a more iconic performance so it's a matter of what you want to reward I think Mm -hmm. Um, last question on Barbie which song which song do you think should or 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 what should win uh, best song if if any of these are the ones to win Um, I think it should be one of these I like these ones um but I'm a little surprised at the order that Gold Derby has them in because I would just flip that. I think What Was I Made For is nice. Uh, it's not that interesting. Uh, Dance the Night Away is my favorite. I think that's like part of the best, part of like, it's probably the best. It's my favorite song in the movie. And uh, I'm Just Ken is like the best use of a song in the movie. But Dance the Night Away is pretty damn close. And I think that, uh, I think that if, Again, if I were picking, Dance the Night Away would run away with it. And the only competition would be I'm Just Ken, probably. No other no, no other, no other movies have a song that, that's in there that's not a credit song? Oh, there probably is, but I can't think of them. All right. Can't Pierre, remember. What about you? What, what have you been bopping to? Um, I haven't really been listening to any of the songs that much. Um, I, I guess I have heard the, the Billie Eilish one more than the others, but... Um, I think I, I agree with Jeff. Like, I'm just Ken. I like that it's a genuine part of the movie. I think the other songs are uh, not entirely connected. Well, I guess you could say the Billy Eilish one is relatively connected. But um, yeah, I don't. I don't think I'm just Ken stands a chance. There's not enough industry backing behind it. And same thing with Dua Lipa. Like, I think the Billy Eilish song. You can just feel the entire industry wants it to win. They've been promoting it nonstop. So yeah. Okay. Uh, that's that's a good point uh, Jeff quick question before we leave uh, since it's not nominated for sword it's not going to be competitive but I'm just Ken versus Peaches Peaches is bad like I'm just Ken is a, is a good song at least Peaches is dumb and All bad right. All right, fair enough, fair enough. All right, the last film we're going to talk about is, after I, I saw this one earlier this week in preparation for this episode, and frankly speaking, uh, 
it's just basically the more mature version, of, the more explicit version of Barbie that they couldn't make, I think. Um, Poor Things is based on a 1992 novel of the same name by Alice Dale Gray. It's a science fantasy black comedy drama following the Victorian woman Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone, who is Frankenstein back to life after her suicide uh, with her infant's brain, in, uh, unborn infant's brain inserted into her brain. So getting weird there um, before she goes on a journey of self-discovery and sexual liberation. Uh, it premiered at the Venice Film Festival where it won the Golden Lion uh, before opening stateside earlier in December by Searchlight Pictures. It is again one of NBR and AFI's top 10 films of the year and is up for 6 Golden Globes and 13 Critics' Choice Awards. Um, on Metacritic, it has 86 out of 57 reviews, uh, 93 on Rotten Tomatoes with 250 reviews and 8.6 out of 10. Um, and in Letterboxd, it has the highest score of these highest score of these four, I believe, uh, 4.33 um, with you know just over 65,000 reviews. Currently number four for Best Picture, uh, number three for director Yorgos Lanthimos, um, who of course is the favorite who was nominated for The Favorite. Um, Emma Stone is nominated for Best Actress, uh, currently ranked number one. Mark Ruffalo and William Dafoe are number three and six respectively for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, Tony McNamara wrote to the screenplay, uh, adapted screenplay, number th- ranked number three. Uh, Robbie Ryan is the cinematographer, ranked number three. Holly Waddington, number two for costume design. Uh, Yorgos uh, Mavrocerides is number three for editing. Um, Again, these are all people who have worked with uh, Yorgos Lanthimos on his other films. Um, Currently ranked number two for makeup and hairstyling. Number two for production design for Sana Heath. Uh, Number three for Jerskin Fendricks for score, which is shortlisted. Um, And then number three for visual effects, um, also shortlisted. Current uh, average ranking of these is 2.67 with five above the line, seven below the line nominations and the one win of these for specifically for Emma Stone. Uh, Pierre, what did you think of Poor Things when you saw it? I really liked it. I It's just such a weird movie that like, I just I just wasn't expecting it. I'm really happy that you know a lot of these actors really challenged themselves with very weird roles, and I thought it came out with some great results. Um, I, I'm concerned for it going into the Oscars just because I feel like it's such a weird movie that... I doubt it's going to win any huge awards. Like I think Emma Stone and I maybe actors awards, but like, like writing and directing wise, like I think uh, it might be in a bit of trouble just because um, I don't think the Academy usually goes for this type of movie. So yeah, but I I think it's just a crazy ride. It's a crazy experience. Um, It has some of my favorite acting from Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo. They're both amazing to this and hilarious. Um, Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I don't know. It was just it was just really fun. Jeff, what were your thoughts on four things? I agree with a lot of that. I love I've um I really love Yorgos Lanthimos already. So I was looking forward to this one and uh it didn't disappoint. I didn't I went in I think I probably had expectations, but I like was surprised right away. Uh actually when you just when when we were doing our episode on this, I think I said like I'm going to tell you what this movie is about, and that's already a spoiler. So if you're at least a little bit interested in this movie, just go see it and don't even listen to this and come back later. Because, like, you talking about... uh, Because, like, talking about how Bella Baxter... How Bella Baxter is Frankenstein back to life was such a strange idea to me that when I saw that, I was like, excuse me, what what is this movie about? And, like, I'd gone in with knowing that she was probably... This, like... There's there's some Frankenstein element. Like I didn't think she was 
I, I thought she was like created or something like that. And then seeing what the actual backstory for Bella Baxter was, I was so, I was like very shocked right out the gate. Um, this is such a creative, weird movie. Uh, made me very interested in reading the book that it's based on. And uh, yeah, this, like I was saying about supporting actor, like Mark Ruffalo is also up there in my favorite supporting performances of the year, along with every other supporting performance we've talked about, except one. Um, but yeah, this is, this, this movie's great. Uh, I'm probably going to gush about it a bunch, but I will let you talk some more so that I, yeah. so that there's some structure to that. Yeah. I mean, my thoughts are, again, I, yeah, I will agree. Probably the most creatively risky film out there. I think similar to Barbie, I think it's it swings, and then I think it has, I think it does a better job than Barbie. Of like I said, it, this is kind of like if Barbie is fem, is is starter pack feminism, this is kind of like deeper iceberg level feminism to some degree, right? Um, where it's not quite so. Hey, I'm gonna do a big monologue on what it is to be a woman in today's society, but it kind of like sews it through Bella's experience, right? In, in the same way, right? Again, we're doing spoilers here. So it kind of does the same thing as Barbie, where she. Is basically a tabula rasa. Barbie is is leaves Barbie world, goes to the real world, discovers kind of like the reality of the world and so on, right? And, and kind of has her realization of what it means to be human and a woman, right? Um, and Bella Baxter, you know, starts essentially as a tabula rasa, right? The blank, the idea of a blank slate, and kind of grows and experiences the world. The high, like as they say at one point in the film, you have to experience everything: the highs, the lows, the beautiful, the the ugly, the pleasurable, the painful, and just experience everything. And that's kind of like the central theme of the film, right? So I think it explores that great. I will say. Like, again, not to be a prude, right? Um, obviously, a lot of sex in this film, right? Um, I saw this with my cousin, actually, and it's just like, okay, we were not expecting this much uh, um, um, full frontal going on here. But, um, like, the, I think I was maybe a little bit disappointed in that I thought that they could have done more with the idea of what Tabula Rasa is, separate from sexual, like the sexual discovery, sexual odyssey, liberation, whatever that she does, right? Um, I, I, maybe that, that's for me personally. I think there's so much more to the idea of Tabula Rasa and exploring uh, how you how you have like a blank slate and how it grows and, and what, what happens when it's ex exposed to the world that's not around sex. And the uh, majority of this movie seems to be around that. Um, but again, that's the choice that they made, so I can't really fault them for that. Um, as far as uh, supporting actor, I actually like Willem Dafoe's character significantly more than Mark Ruffalo's character. I think Mark, Mark Ruffalo is getting the buzz in a similar way to the way that Leo is getting buzzed, but in the opposite direction. Whereas Leo is always, has always played kind of like this very charismatic individual and here's kind of playing this sniveling coward. Here, in the past, Mark Ruffalo has always been kind of like the nice guy, Bruce Banner, in most people's eyes. And here he's playing against type by being this loud, um, you know, flamboyant, not flamboyant, but very, very ostentatious, very out there, lawyer, philanderer, womanizer type character, basically, which is just against type. So that's why he's getting hype for it, I think. Um, but I didn't really get much of like who he was as a person, right? Beyond that surface level, oh, he's like a flanderer who kind of gets in over his head. I think the Willem Dafoe character, between the prosthetics and between kind of like just the backstory he tells of like his being experimented on by his father and how that kind of informs how he approaches the world, I think was a much better character for by Willem Dafoe. So I personally would put Dafoe over Ruffalo for me personally. Um, but again, 
really strong film overall. Uh, and yeah, I mean that that's my thoughts. Um, Jeff, you had more to guss about. So so what 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 other gussing do you have to do? Oh well, first, just on Mark Ruffalo, I think what's really interesting about Mark Ruffalo's character is that he has the opposite character arc of Emma Stone. He starts the he starts the play the movie. Um, he starts the second act of the movie. The second act being the longest part of the movie. Yeah. He starts that basically where Emma Stone finishes it. And by the end, he's saying single word sentences and he's lost his mind. Like he, he regresses over time to a toddler where Emma Stone has like a coming of age character, a uh, character. Okay. Arc. Quick um, I didn't think about That's good. That's good. So I think that's what really sells it for Mark Ruffalo for me. I wouldn't put Willem Dafoe in supporting actor here personally, because I think he's, I think there's probably, I mean, we've already talked about three supporting actors that I would put in here and like the, the place is just going to get too crowded, but he does give a very good performance. He's Willem Dafoe. He always does. Uh, I'm looking forward but, to, to Nosferatu next year. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm excited. But like he gives an he gives an incredible performance. What you pointed out about where he talks about his father experimenting on him, I thought that he he communicates that in such a like both in in a way that both like communicates his character well and is also really funny because every time he talks about some experiment that his father did, he says it offhandedly and it's like in the script it's put together as a joke for Rami Youssef to just go, wait, excuse me, what? What did your father do? And it works every time. It's always funny. Yeah. Um, Pierre, what other thoughts do you have on the, on this film? Anything on the technical side, perhaps? Um, you know, visual effects, I think like the animal the animal grafting was something that, that stood out to me, but that's that's a minor thing. But anything like set design, costumes, like what, what did you think? Yeah, set design was really cool. I just love the kind of Disneylandification of some of these uh, European cities. I just thought it was, there were some really fun sets and I'm pretty sure, yeah, just everything was filmed in a studio on those scenes, but like it just added so much character to the movie. Um, yeah. And like a lot of the, like the score was really good. I love the score. Um, directing wise, like obviously it was very creatively directed, like cinematography too. There was so many, crazy shots cinematography wise like um that just blew me away like that little they, they used a lot of what was it the fish fish lens thing a the lot? fish eye lens okay so cinematography like oh my god this is honestly i think one of the films i would want to win cinematography more than anything else right it just they just do so much with the um, the fish eye lens and how that communicates, right? Like how Bella is just like exploring the world around her, taking it all in around her, having that wide view of, of the world around her and taking it in. And then compare that to then they, they use like a, I think like a 16 millimeter lens on a 35 millimeter camera, which is how they got like that pinhole camera effect. So it's like a small planet view, right? Like just what they do with that, I think is just amazing on, on, on cinematography. And then like the score, I'm just going to also like the score where like the plucking, like the offbeat like score is like also very distinct, I think as well. It kind of matches the tone and the mood of the film so well. Like this is a, this is a, one of my favorite, I think scores and, and cinematography combos out there for me. I stand by that Robbie Robertson is my favorite score here, but I think that uh, the score for for Poor Things is by far the most interesting of any of these scores, and I really like it. Like, if we're just... This is such a hard year, but, like, uh, best score... Like, sorry, the score for Poor Things 
is um, it fits the movie so well. It's so weird and discordant uh, and yet still works. And I think it's like, if someone were to go through and listen to all the scores that are eventually nominated for the Oscars this year, uh, I think that like the one you'd remember most would be the one from Poor Things because it is so strange, but in a good way. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, okay, so I know, again, we're running a little bit long here. I go, we have four movies to talk about, so that's going to happen. But um, Emma Stone versus Lily Gladstone. Those are the two front runners for, for Best Actress right now. Currently, Emma Stone's in the lead. I thought that Lily Gladstone would kind of like take this away when I when I saw it. I couldn't see how anyone could stand up to Lily Gladstone's performance. Um, but clearly, Emma Stone is is definitely giving her one for the money right now. So, uh, Jeff, where do you stand? And Jeff, then and Pierre, where do you guys stand on on who's to take the home lead actress right now? I think of those two, Emma Stone. I think Lily Gladstone is very very good. Um, but the fact that there's even a question whether she's supporting or not supporting is indicative of the fact that she has very little screen time in that movie. And while I think that she uses that screen time really, really effectively and puts in an amazing performance, Emma Stone just has way more to do and is equally good, if not better. Pierre? Yeah, I agree. I think I think Lily Gladstone is unfortunately in a tough position uh, for lead actor, just or like lead actress, just because... Uh, Emma Stone just has so much to work with. It's insane. And she is able to give so many different types of performances because her character is slowly growing up. Um, she definitely like she, she plays it comedically. She plays some tragic scenes. Like there's just so much here. And I think you can tell she really, really challenged herself. You know, like this is a very weird role to take and she doesn't have to, but she really did it. So it's kind of come down to a difference of like, maybe like, um, like what they have to work with, right? And ha- and how much that handicaps a potential potential run for Gladstone potentially. Yeah, like I think Lily Gladstone okay, was um, amazing, and like I, th- I I was very impressed with how much she brought to such a subtle performance. But overall, it's just Emma Stone had way too much to you. I mean, Bella Baxter. I, I heard someone say Bella Baxter is like the movie character of the year, right? Like in terms of creating a singular fictional character. Um, or adaptation of a real life person. She's the one who's like probably the most iconic of this year, potentially. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Awesome. Uh, any other thoughts on poor things before we, we move to wrap up the episode? It's such a cool movie. I mean, if, if, if people have listened this far into the, uh, in, into the show, then they're going to have a pretty good idea of what it's about, which isn't a bad thing because I, guarantee you're not ready for this movie if you haven't seen it like it's so weird and cool and i do hope i do want people to see it and thankfully it looks like it looks like people are seeing it so that's good but people should see it and i am very i guess i'm not excited for the discourse to come out of it but i'm excited for people to like it question uh which is a weirder movie to watch with your parents poor things or saltburn probably saltburn (laughs) Yeah, that 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 that's fair. Um, okay, so overall thoughts, right? Like, what are your guys' thoughts? Just kind of in summary, like I know Pierre at the beginning of the episode, you said you didn't think that the, this year's Oscars movies were quite as well. Talking it out, do you still feel that way with these four? Um, do you feel maybe it's a little bit better with just how good these movies are? Like what Jeff, you know, what 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 do you guys all think about these four movies as as contenders? Do you, like, will they take up over half of the available non you know s- specific categories? 
yeah I, I i feel like um oppenheimer this year is just a gonna be a awards beast you know like it i think it just did everything production wise right it's and it's extremely ambitious and it made tons of money um so it's just i think like a critical darling for the oscars right now and um yeah and, and also with poor things though i think it has potential in terms of the 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 sheer creativity of it i think it could gather up some like some of the smaller awards like potentially set design would be interesting just because of how different it was whereas oppenheimer's was also very very well done but um there's a little less creativity to it i want to say um so yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be very tough uh competitive competitive what do you think kills the flower moon or barbie get away with anything like winning wise i i also think barbie could win for production design um other than that though i don't think so like i think it's kind of like the black panther of the year where it might win a couple like maybe like it's definitely gonna win you know best song um and it could maybe get yeah like production design or I don't know, maybe editing or something like there's something there. I think Killers of the Flower Moon is just too, it's good at everything, but it's not amazing, amazing at anything. And I think that's going to v- really limit it from winning any, any awards, honestly. Jeff, what about you? What do you think? Um, I, I think I said at the beginning, like this is incredibly hard for me to pick with a lot of these. And I'll be very happy if, I'll be very happy if these four movies come away with, mostly anything that they're in the running for currently i guess we'll have to wait to see what the nominations look like for me to specifically rank them against each other but like i think um yeah i i'm i'm happy i i liked all four of these movies and i will be happy to uh see them get more attention well, compared to previous years where we had episodes where I think I think we had we then we we do the uh, what's it the King Richard uh, one year and then we also did another year where like there was a movie that you guys were just not a fan of Belfast I think um, um, Mank no we didn't do the Mank year with you I don't well, think. well I forget which one but there were definitely I feel like every I feel like every year we've done an episode there's always been at least one movie we just sit on collectively on. Um, yeah, I can't remember what it was the Belfast year, unless it, the Belfast year was King Richard. Because uh-huh. I remember we didn't hate Belfast. It was King Richard we were we were, we were capping on, but uh, yeah, I think um, I think I think we were able to get four for four this year, guys. So I think that that's oh, a yeah. success. Um, any other movies this year that you guys want to highlight that you saw that maybe weren't in Oscar contention or we haven't talked about this episode that you wanna that you wanna shout out? Uh yeah, I really like the holdovers. Uh, I just saw that recently, like. The very last minute, I thought it looked terrible, honestly, from the trailer. And um, but yeah, it was it was a great movie. Um, I guess like, oh, go ahead. I just wanted to say quickly. Also, I saw Godzilla minus one, uh, recently. That's really well done, and I hope it gets some uh, awards, uh, attention. Maybe like visual effects. Uh, what about, what about you, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, definitely I second Godzilla Minus One. I loved Shin Godzilla when it came out, and Godzilla Minus One is everything I would have wanted from a follow-up to that movie. Uh, so definitely Godzilla Minus One. And then we actually just did an episode, which I don't know if it came out before this episode or if it comes out after. We'll find out. Um, where we highlighted some of our some of our favorite movies of the year that we hadn't talked about yet. And uh, one that I'm just going to specifically talk about here is uh, the first slam dunk. I don't think that's going to be up for any 
uh, Oscar. Con- I don't think it's going to be a contender, although it certainly should be an animated. It is maybe the best theater experience I have had in my entire life. I went to a packed theater, and it was like a bunch of people who clearly don't know very much about basketball at the beginning. By the end, we were all basketball fans, and people like stood up and clapped in the theater to like at, yeah. at, when the when the basketball game was concluding. Look, not like, only I, I also watched the first slam dunk. Not only did the first slam dunk get me to go back and re, re and read for the first time the actual slam dunk manga. It made me get into a sports kick, and I ended up going on to read uh, ICL 21 as well, the manga as well, the American football. So, oh, nice. um, yeah, first time done, can co sign that, can co sign, um, can co sign uh, Godzilla minus one as well for sure. Happy to see that get the visual effects sort, uh, sort list as well. So, um, yes. yeah, definitely a good year for movies for me, I, I think. I hope it. I hope it doesn't stop at the shortlist. I hope that we see Godzilla minus one at the Oscars because uh, I mean we don't have to. It's already a good movie, but I want more people to see it. And I know it's doing very well right now. It should do better. It should do even better. I want people to see what a Godzilla movie can be when people who care about Godzilla make it. Yep. Uh, in any case, then. So speaking of, you guys mentioned you guys you know just did an end of year wrap up episode. Uh, tell us about social media. Tell us where we can find you guys. You know, otherwise, if you guys you know love talking about movies, I know obviously you guys are in the Academy of Death Racers Discord. But anything else you guys want to plug? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, just before before we plug ourselves, uh, the Academy of Death Racers does have a festival coming up, which hopefully like is either concurrent with or comes or will start after this episode um, comes out. It's, I believe, starting, you have the exact dates, but it's at least the first, it's the yeah. second and third week of, uh, of January. And we have over, fi- we have over 50 shorts, shorts in our, uh, that we're going to be showing. And um, we're actually including some this year that we, uh, we have a special presentations section, which is where all of the programmers got to like, manually pick one short that they were really passionate about and we and we have to like basically uh we're we're making our own like promotional stuff for that i just did one interview for that today i'm very excited for people to see like what our programmers thought were the best shorts of the festival that's uh um there's just a lot of cool stuff and i will uh i you you may have a statement that you'll bring up another time and we'll definitely bring it up more um, and I don't have anything prepared that I'm reading right now, so I don't want to get anything wrong. But yeah, don't worry. I'm, 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 I'm definitely going to be plugging this as well. Uh, we'll have plugged this on the episode as well. So okay. yeah, Academy of Death Racers uh, Film Festival. Uh, anything else? Yeah, uh, that's very exciting. Go see that. And other than that, uh, you can. Uh, we're about to be starting our fifth season uh, where we've got a lot of cool plans coming up. Um, including our director showdown that we did a pilot for, and now we're going to start getting into the getting into the grid of it. We're going to start really going for it. Um, and anyway, you can find us on Twitter. I'm not as active there as I should be, but I... Uh, we refuse I, to call it X. I try to be. Oh, yeah, I forgot. It's called something else now. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, Still Twitter. Yeah, you can find you can find us on Twitter. We're at UBCOCML. Usually I'm... I'm not very active on that, but occasionally I'll like shitpost on there as well as promote our episodes which you should definitely listen to um and then pierre runs the rest of our social media so i'm gonna hand it off to you pierre uh yeah i we have a tiktok i think 
classic movies live we don't post nearly enough oh and also on instagram too classic movies live so check us out on those we yeah and we gotta post more yeah i know that like i i liked that format but like it's it's i don't know about you pierre i'm not a big social media guy so it's hard for me to like devote the energy to it just because i forget <laughs> uh it's not, don't worry. It's not that it's hard effort to put in it's just that i forget to do it Look, I just want to make, I just want to watch movies and think about them and make a podcast about them. I don't have to promote it, you know, but yeah. here we are. So, um, but speaking well, of promotion, we've actually talked about every single one of these movies that we talked about on this show today. We have talked about them on our show with dedicated episodes. So you can find all of those over on Spotify. And hopefully, hopefully soon, if I finally get around to it, a different pro- podcast provider near you. All right. Well, I will be linking to the Spotify episodes in the show notes. Jeff, Pierre, it's a pleasure as always to have you guys on uh, for these best picture previews for the Oscars. I'm glad we were able to get four for four good films this year, finally. Um, yes. So hopefully next year we can we can, we can can continue that streak. But um, once again, check out the guys on the social medias, link in the show notes. Um, thank you, Jeff and Pierre, for coming on. Thank you. Many thanks again to Jeff and Pierre for joining me in tackling these films. As always, all of Classic Movies Live's socials will be linked in the show notes, so be sure to go give those diaries a listen and you definitely won't regret it. Uh, with all of the big picture contenders now officially discussed on this podcast, next episode we'll do our annual nominations prediction contest with Dakota from Contest Zoom Pod. You'll also hopefully are well equipped to start entering that nomination prediction contest that I have for, of course, for ultimate bragging rights. Closes on January 23rd when the Oscar nominees are announced. Uh, but again, you will get uh, a head advantage in any tiebreaker situations uh, the earlier you submit. A uh, link to that will be in the show notes. Uh, in any case, that wraps up the episode of, uh, of the Oscars Death Race podcast. Let me know how your Death Race prep is going at Twitter at OscarsDRaceCast or via email at OscarsDeathRacePodcast at zealand.com. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your podcast service of choice, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. And if you can leave us a review, there they or even to share with a friend who loves movies, any of that is super helpful. Uh, those will be linked in the show notes alongside my Letterboxd account under the username NinzaBoy, Boy with an I. Also, be sure to check out the Oscar Race and Oscars Death Race subreddits and the Academy of Death Race Discord as well as AODR.net, OscarsDeathRace.com, and DeathRaceTracking.com. Uh, shout out actually real quick to uh, Slide Astro, uh, the one, the you know, kind of our, our, our fearless moderator, um, you know, coordinator of the Deathies. Um, he's been the one who's managing the DeathRaceTracking.com site, and, you know, he ran into some financial troubles with it, you know, it ended up being a lot more popular than he was expecting, um, and the community kind of rallied and actually came around to, uh, you know, chip in to help with the costs. Um, if you're interested, I'll actually link the GoFundMe for that in the show notes as well. I believe it's fully funded for the year, but hey, any little help, any little bit can help. Uh, music in this show is provided by Kevin MacLeod at Incompetent.filmmusic.io. Editing production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. That's it for this week. This has been Paulo of the Oscars Death Face Podcast. Until next time, I'll be here trying to watch all the Oscar nominees or die trying. Mm-hmm.